Well, good evening, everybody. It's Chris here from the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mira, Alberta. Uh, and we are here with the Chris and Carrie show with Mr. Don Sharp. Um, now, this is kind of going to be an interesting uh, episode of our of our little show here because uh, you've probably heard us talk about some things that are impacting people's lives over the last, I don't know, year or whatever, two years. And there are things happening that a lot of people don't even realize they don't know what's happening and they sometimes don't know that it could happen until it's too late. So we want to talk about that today. And uh, that, that's why we've invited Don to come and have this discussion with us um, because he is actually, you know what, Don, I'm just going to let you introduce yourself because Carrie did send me a little bio or, or thing or whatever, but I didn't bring it up. So if you don't mind, Don, uh, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. And would you mind introducing yourself and letting everyone know who you are and what you're doing and why you're doing it? Well, thanks very much, uh, Chris and Carrie. I'm really grateful to be here and happy to talk about this subject. I'm a registered paramedic here in Alberta and have been for a very long time. I was in, I've been involved in EMS for 40 years. I started in a small rural community, High River. I started as a volunteer. I basically walked in and said, I hear you're looking for volunteers. I don't know what you need me to do. I can sit at a county fair table or help you put a package. He said, well, if you had a class four, you could drive the ambulance. And I said, well, I have a class four. I drove cab in high school. Yeah. And he said, can you start tonight? He said, if you come in an hour early, the paramedic will show you how to work the lights and siren and work the stretcher, and you'll take a radio home. And the conversation I had with my wife when I got home that night was, uh, was, was one of a kind. She said, you did what? Mm -hmm. I said, I'm now, a, I'm now an ambulance driver. I'm a volunteer with the ambulance service. And so uh, I worked 12 nights in a row. Uh, my fourth night, I did CPR for the first time. I didn't have a CPR ticket. And that is so different from how medics start now. I mean, you, yes. need, you need years of training now to work on an ambulance in this province. And and uh, I wonder if sometimes we haven't uh, made a mistake by keeping people who just want to help yeah. um, off the ambulance with some training. But I'm like I say, I'm grateful to be here. I've, uh, I've lobbied really hard with this current uh, government. Mm -hmm for the last couple of years. So we can talk about some of the things that are happening now and, and maybe I can shed some light on how people can help. That's right great. Yeah, we, uh, so I, I met Don at a, a, a meeting and he was speaking there and I was immediately enthralled with uh, with his knowledge of what had been happening in terms of the, the EMS crisis as well as some solutions. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have uh, Don on the show is to, to talk about what is actually going on with AHS and EMS and what, what are the problems that you've noticed? And, and one thing I should also say is you said you have been a paramedic. You just recently retired, right? So congratulations on retiring. Thank I know you. you're still you're still keeping busy doing this, which uh, and talking about it. And and one of the things Chris and I have talked about many times is that it it seems to be the whistleblowers, if you want to call yourself a whistleblower, are always the ones that are either retired or they've uh, been you know let go or they they've just you know kind of given up and just walked yeah. away from their job. Well, there's a reason for that. Well, of course, yeah. because if you're if you're still in the system you're basically going to get fired and uh and you know retire or not even retire but just leave without your uh yeah, your pension or anything like that but i believe don you had said that you were actually trying to make change while you were still working well for several years yeah uh, after hs took over and even before that there's 
lots of opportunities for employees who are enthusiastic about the work and, and care about patients uh, to submit proposals or work on projects to help them right from the front line. Yeah. And I've done that my whole career. When AHS took over, I made a good faith effort to try to work as hard as I could to uh, make the, this new uh, regime work. Yeah. And it took me a couple of three years, but then when I started th seeing things go really sideways, um, started writing reports, started submitting suggestions, getting involved in improvement projects, I've posted a lot of those. If you Google uh, Don Sharp and SlideShare, yeah. or Don Sharp and Hallway Weights, or Don Sharp and Ambulance Bay, you'll see some of the work that I've done. And I submitted all of these things and it literally fell on deaf ears. Hmm. So as a senior paramedic, which isn't a real title, it just means I'm getting older. I've been there a long time. Hmm. Uh, I, can, I can do some things that younger paramedics who have families can't do. Yeah. Um, I can... Uh, I can go up against the machine a little harder than some people are willing to. And that was in the documentary that Kathy Lee did. She talked to a lot of paramedics who just wouldn't appear on camera. Yeah. Um, and I was close enough to the end of my career that I said, absolutely, I'll do it. And, and now that, that document documentary with Kathy Lee, she's, she's from CTV. She is. Yeah. And she is a wonderful mainstream media reporter. She is fierce. She is hardworking. She is honest. Yeah. She is so compassionate. And we worked for 16 months on this uh, documentary um, while I was trying to build, well, not trying to, I was successfully building these rural citizen action groups. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were looking to, in no, no, there's no better word than expose, expose the, the lack of transparency, the lack of accountability, the outright lies that HSEMS was telling to people and the complete and total lack of leadership in that organization. So again, I, I would travel to small towns, book a hall, invite people, talk to local journalists, show up with a couple of other guys, paramedics, and uh, try to encourage people to step up to the mic, tell their story about a long EMS response, and then build a team, build a EMS citizen action group mm -hmm. to, uh, to deal with this crisis in their town. So uh, we can talk more about that too, if you like, but yeah. So what was the crisis? We, we talk about the crisis, and, uh, but, but let's, let's address exactly what the crisis is. Is it there's just not enough ambulances? Is it uh, they're, they're coming from elsewhere? And, and like you said, waiting in the hallways? Like, what's, what's your view on what's been going on? Well, there's, it's the difference between symptoms and root causes. Okay. So one of the symptoms that we noticed right away is that ambulance res responses for critical patients Mm -hmm. especially in rural communities, were lengthening. And I've heard from paramedics working for the last couple of years, they say, as soon as we get to a call, we don't, the first words aren't, uh, hi, I'm Don, I'm a paramedic, I'm here to help. Uh, or the first words out of a lot of paramedic smiles is, we're sorry it took so long for us to get here. Wow. Mm. And we've, we've seen responses to places like Cochrane and Canmore and uh, High River, Airdrie, places that have their own ambulance, are suddenly needing an ambulance coming from the city or coming from a district that's two or a city that's two districts over. Um, Here's one that was, uh, this kind of went viral back in January. I'll just pop it up here. So this was, uh, this was a post that kind of made the Facebook yeah. news early on in the year. And uh, what was happening is like exactly what you're saying. These smaller places, in this case, it was Hannah. If you needed an ambulance, you're looking at, two hours plus 
to get in to get some something out of uh, uh, Calgary. Yeah, it's staggering. And if you were working on the front lines and you got this call on your computer and you said, holy, you want us to drive two hours for a critical patient? Well, are you kidding? Yeah. And in a lot of cases, um, that ambulance coming from Hannah might actually be canceled five minutes after they've been dispatched. Let, wow. me build, let me build that scenario for you. So the call comes into Airdrie. The closest ambulance they have available is in Hannah, so they dispatch them. And then let's say an ambulance clears in Cochrane. Yeah. And they go, oh, well, why, we'll send an ambulance from Cochrane. They're closer. Cancel Hannah, send Cochrane. Uh, then Cochrane uh, gets rerouted to a call closer to them, maybe uh, on the highway for a car crash. And so yeah. the next available truck is coming out of the foothills. So they'll start that truck. And then that truck will get rerouted to a call in the city. And then another ambulance will clear from the Peter Lougheed or downtown yeah. Sheldon Schumer. And that I've literally been the ninth ambulance assigned to a call. Wow. And it's it, now it, is that is that a dispatch problem or is that just the protocol well, it says on a map? That's that's the way you got to do it. Well, so these are again, these are all symptoms. Yeah. We're not talking about root causes. Long response times are a symptom. Yeah. Uh, if you. Uh, paramedics uh, being exhausted, uh, booking off because of stress or, yeah. you know, like a 12-hour shift that turns into a 14-hour shift. These are all symptoms. Yeah. Root causes, we can talk about those. There are things like hallway waits. Yeah. Um, uh, ambulances being out of service because they're broken. Yeah. I've talked to some of the people at fleet and they said, uh, staffing rather, and they say, even if we had every paramedic who was assigned to, sh to work here today show up, we don't have enough ambulances for them to work in. Wow. So that's got to be frustrating. I mean, you, you started that because you wanted to help people a volunteer position, right? Yep. And so being one of those people that just wants to help people, I can only, you know, I can't even comprehend what it feels like to see this happening in front of you be that ninth call and like it's it's got to go through your head at some point okay well i'm going to pick up a body you know because this is happening and that's that's got to be a really really stressful uh work environment it is so stressful on the cruise and not only that but to respond across the city to almost get there and then get rerouted to something else and then almost get to that call and get rerouted to something else you end up doing so much driving yeah. Never getting anywhere because a closer truck has been canceled. And just I know the Okotoks crews. I've had calls from the Okotoks crews and say they said we've just been can dispatched and canceled five times in the last ten minutes to different calls. Wow! Again, these are all symptoms. If yeah. so, why are there no ambulances? Why are there uh, long responses? And people have told me they say, "Well, Don, we need more ambulances. We need twenty more ambulances right away." Well, that's not just 20 ambulances, that's also 40 paramedics. That's right. You yeah. got to have a lot of, you got to have a lot of staff. So where they, you can't just make an ambulance. You can't just make a paramedic. So um, why don't we take a look at what our ambulances are doing now that they shouldn't be doing and deal with that. And then once we get those problems fixed, then we'll look at how many ambulances we really need. Yeah. For example, if you've got all your ambulances by 11 o'clock, uh, that, are, that have shown up to work, all the crews that have shown up to work. If 60% uh, of them by 11 o'clock in the morning are waiting in hospital hallways with patients, mm -hmm. suddenly you've only got 40% of your fleet. Now they're doing calls. So you've got to start bringing crews in from other areas to cover. Yeah, Let's get them out of the hallway. 
And then let's find out how many trucks we really need. How many ambulances do we really need yeah. if we can stop our emergency ambulances from doing things they shouldn't be doing? This sounds so like I, a common theme. Sorry, Carrie. Yeah. It's it sounds okay. like a common theme to me. Anything that's centrally planned or to do with the government, it it seems to me that it's always well, we need to throw more resources at it. We need to throw more resources, more money. We need to hire more people, buy more ambulances. But really what needs to be done first and what you're saying and what I've been saying uh, for a while is that the resources need to be managed more effectively and more efficiently. No Use question. what you have better and then find out what you have. So at the Airdrie City Council meeting last week, November 7th, um, one of the uh, presenters from AHS EMS who was speaking to council said they're going to have secondary triage up and running by April of next year. Secondary triage is where, Chris, if you phone an ambulance and you say, I've been stung by a wasp on my elbow, I want an ambulance. Mm -hmm. And the dispatcher will say, okay, is that your only concern? You've been bitten once on your elbow or do you have any symptoms? Are you short of breath? Are you feeling faint? No, no, happened an hour ago, but I want to go to the hospital. Then you'll be transferred to secondary triage as a very minor complaint. And that secondary triage won't, you won't get an ambulance. Not only that, you won't go to a hospital. You might get an Uber or they might encourage you to get a community volunteer resource or, hey, why don't we call your sister and she can drive you to a clinic. In fact, they'll tell you not to go to a hospital because you won't be seen. But there's so many political ramifications. There's legal liability that, in my personal view, is imaginary hmm. uh, because the alternative is to send the perhaps the only emergency ambulance for if you live in a small town, you might get the only ambulance for 4,500, 1,400 kilometers yeah. in any direction, right? 1,400 square kilometers in your community, yeah. tied up on somebody with a wasp bite, and then they get a cardiac arrest or a car crash. Yeah. It's irresponsible at best. Wow. So, so they're so worried about being liable by, by telling people not to go to the hospital that they're exposing themselves to liability by, by using the resources um, in, in, ineffectively. Correct. And if you phone for an ambulance and you say, where's the ambulance coming from? Let's say, Carrie, you and I are driving back from hunting mm -hmm. and I've accidentally shot you and I'm really sorry. Sorry. Ow. So, right. So. It wasn't in the arm, <laughs> Carrie. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to phone 911 while I'm driving yeah. and I'm going to say, we're coming in from this location. We're 50 miles away. Yeah. Uh, uh, I've accidentally shot my buddy and uh, we need an ambulance. They're, they're going to say, pull over and wait. We're going to send an ambulance to you. Well, the right thing to do in that circumstance is not say no. Yeah. I'm not pulling over. I'm going to keep driving. That's right. I'm coming in on Highway 2. Right now, I'm just passing Didsbury. Yeah. If you can meet me on the highway, then that's great. We'll transfer care, and you can take care of my friend and, and yeah. take him to the hospital. Otherwise, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Because I've talked to people on the phone. I dispatched for a lot of years. Um, I've got a long history of, uh, and I can tell you a little more about dispatch. And back in the nineties, when we first started doing pre-arrival instructions, mm -hmm. staying on the phone with people while the ambulance was responding to help. I've talked to a mother who's carrying her dying nine-year-old child in her arms to the car because they live too far from any help. Wow. And she says, we're going to start. And I said, well, we can, I can get things moving. Maybe we can get you a helicopter. She says, nope, he's dying right now. And he was in a bad farm accident and, and we're going to leave. And I said, okay, stay on the line with me. Uh, we'll mm -hmm. get some help going, but they know, they know they're too far away to get any immediate help. And yeah. so rural people are a lot more resilient and a lot more 
heads up, I think, is probably the best term. They're not going to sit still and let people. That's why I don't have any citizen action groups in the city. City people are sure comfortable with, uh, no, no, there's an ambulance coming. But uh, even in the city, that's a huge mistake these days. Well, and they, they might think, oh, you know, I live right by the hospital and, yep. oh, I can or, see the ambulance bit, the thing right there. But that doesn't always mean that you're oh. going to get care immediately. Yeah. In that uh, broken system, EMS crisis in Alberta documentary that Kathy Lee did, we, uh, Andrea Anderson is the widow of Don Anderson. They lived in Woodbine. She called. Uh, he was having a rectal bleed post-surgical. He was home from the hospital. Uh, she waited an hour and a half in Woodbine. That's a suburb. That's a suburban. Like 10 minutes away from Rocky View. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. So, and it just breaks my heart. I talked to Andrea again this morning. We, uh, we keep in touch. She did the interview with, for the documentary in my living room. And these, uh, these stories are really hard to hear. How long ago was that? Uh, that was probably a year and a half ago. Oh, that this is recent. Heard. But the, uh, the documentary itself came out on October 10th or 11th. It came out Thanksgiving, yeah. Monday. So it's worth watching. Uh, it's only 30 minutes, but it gives a really good description of what the problem is. For instance, uh, Chris, you're sitting there with your dad and say he has a stroke. It's pretty obvious. Slurred speech, left-sided facial droop, uh, uh, weakness in an arm or leg. But he's not short of breath. He's still alert. He's a little anxious. You're a little anxious. So you call for an ambulance and uh, they tell you there's one on the way, or maybe they tell you they don't have one available right now, but they're going to send one as soon as they do have one. Yeah, yeah. Well, a stroke is a time dependent emergency and you don't really need a paramedic. You just you need to get him to the hospital. You need yeah. time dependent. He's got to get to the hospital. So we've encouraged uh, citizens to have a plan B to not just consider, do I really need an ambulance? But to also think, what if I call for an ambulance and one isn't coming? Mm -hmm. So have a plan B. How are you going to get dad into the car if you're if he's a big guy or if there's uh, stairs? Um, yeah. You know, you got to get him safely into the car. So you give it give it some thought. And not only that, but once you hang up the phone, um, don't turn off your brain. Don't just say, okay, an ambulance is coming. I'll make tea for them for when they get here. It's not... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because quite frankly, a lot of people wait 30 minutes before they even come back and say, gosh, we've been waiting a long time. Yeah. This ties in really, really well within kind of a, an all-encompassing societal problem we have these days. And this come, this ends up affecting everything from government to healthcare to um, our emergency services. And that is people have been trained and conditioned yep. to wait for somebody to save them. Wait yep. for someone to come and help me. And a lot of people have lost the, the idea that, hey, at the end of the day, I'm responsible for my survival. Mm -hmm. you know, So I better be prepared and I should have the tools and the resources and the education to do some things to help myself. And, and we see that with uh, government, of course, comes to mind because I'm obviously fighting the government for quite a while. We wait for a politician to come save us from our problems and yeah. we all cheer when they come and... You know, they're there and they're going to save us and then they don't. And we're like, oh, well, what's going on? We thought we're, they're going to save us. And, it, and it's, this is the same thing. So this, the, 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 the root cause for a lot of these issues is the same thing. And that is people have forgotten that they're responsible for themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. I agree. So prior to uh, AHS coming in in uh, 2008, 
my understanding was that um, ambulances in rural communities were kind of taken care of by the rural community. And AHS was brought in as this central group. And uh, and since then, <laughs> it's gone downhill. Is that a fair assumption? It is. Um, but again, it wasn't, uh, it didn't happen in isolation. Yeah. Um, a lot of rural communities wanted uh, some provincial money. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of uh, coverage, let's say from Calgary south to the border, was pretty spotty. If you were in Calgary, you got one of the top ALS services, advanced life support services in North America, yeah. pre uh, pre the takeover. The uh, we committed we competed in advanced life support competitions all across North America. Frequently came in in the top five percent. We had great protocols, great medical directors, enthusiastic paramedics, and lots of them. We had more paramedics in Calgary than they have in all of British Columbia. Wow. Yeah. So. Now, remember, when I say paramedics, I mean uh, actual ALS, advanced life support care paramedics. In BC, forever, if you worked on an ambulance, you were called a paramedic. Here in Alberta, you had to have four years of school to be called a paramedic. That just recently changed when AHS took over. Hmm. So it's a, I know it sounds complicated. It's a little too complicated. We had more advanced life support practitioners here in Alberta than we did in BC. Anyways, uh, as you drove south, High River uh, had paramedics as well. Nanton had paramedics, but when you got down to Cardston or uh, Claire's home, sometimes you had uh, Coaldale, you had mum and pop almost operations. You had a van with a bed in the back and yeah. and uh, grandpa would drive and and uh, mum would, would be the attendant. So one of the advantages was uh, evening out, uh, making sure that all of these small resource, uh, small communities had a advanced life secure, uh, support resource. So that was great. Yeah. They said that we'd get great training, but of course, in a crisis, in a war, which is what we're in now, mm -hmm. one of the first things to evaporate is training. Yeah. So paramedics now, in the if they work for HS, they'll probably get one training day a year. We used to have field trainers that came out and trained us on all the latest. Uh, they'd take us out of service for an hour, an hour and a half. You need practice with some of these skills that we don't use all that often. Yeah. I mean, I don't intubate a two-year-old every day. I might do one a year, but yeah. it's something you need to keep uh, need to keep up on. So. There were some advantages. We worked really hard to make it work, but it, it became very clear by 2012, 2013 that it was uh, it was going sideways in a big way. And um, if I wanted to move, say, from A shift to B shift here in Calgary, that had to be approved in Edmonton. Yeah. Even my supervisor said, I, well, I know it's ridiculous, but that's the way we do things now. And uh, central control, then they started taking things away. Mm -hmm. They... Uh, Rural communities like High River had a real solid core of enthusiastic, well-trained, well-supported uh, volunteers who went back to school and got their paramedic certification, mm -hmm. wanted to work in their community five or six uh, shifts a, a month or 10 shifts a month. HS said, nope, we're going to abolish all of those. Send them all home. We're going to put full-time paramedics in each community. And everybody initially said, well, that's great. We'll have full-time staff. We won't need any volunteers. But here's the, here's the rub. What do you do when there's nobody to back you up? Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got Vulcan is a really good example. They've got one ambulance. And so if one crew member is sick, how long does it take to get? And if uh, AHS pulls that Vulcan ambulance, it sends it to Calgary to do a call or a transfer. Yeah. yeah. It's gone for six or eight hours. Yeah. 
they rapidly found out that AHS didn't do them any favors. Well, so, and that's, you know, we've had that conversation with a few doctors about, you know, what happened when these juggernaut health services providers came in and took over these community hospitals and community healthcare facilities. Um, we've talked to doctors from Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan, and they all say the same thing. The central planning and central control and central organization that promised these smaller areas uh, better services, uh, better access, better physicians, all those things was a complete failure. And it wasn't, I, I, I want to be very clear with this, it wasn't because the people who were doing the work, doing the jobs on the front lines were not doing a good job. I mean, those people have always been fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, this is a this is this is something uh, um, way above their pay grade that's that's causing this. I think I would almost call it a collapse of effective healthcare. Yeah, I can't disagree. Um, you see more and more people being hired by AHS. You see less and less service being delivered. Um, I'm hoping this new government is able to turn it around. But boy, I'll tell you, we are. This ship has got a lot of holes in it, and it's going down pretty quick. Well, you know, people were, like you even mentioned, you know, throw throw money at it, throw uh, ambulances at it. And, but unfortunately, we don't have enough workers to do it. So as far as I know, and I could be totally wrong, like uh, Sate and Nate uh, both have EMT type of courses. Yep. Do you know if the people that are coming out of there are, are basically going right to work? Are they just taking the courses and then going somewhere else? Because it sounds like it sounds like there's dozens and dozens of people coming through there all the time, and I'm just thinking they got to get hired through AHS. Well, I'll tell you, it's not as uh, it's not coming. I mean, paramedics aren't cookies, right? You can't yeah. just yeah. make twelve of them. Yeah. Uh, it takes it takes years and lots of training and lots of uh, certification. And the idea that you can't have any volunteer. We used to get a lot of people becoming full time paramedics through the volunteer program. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we'll talk about Israel later and how many volunteers yeah. they have. But uh, yeah. the schools can only crank out so many. Yeah. And again, like it's, like you said, uh, it doesn't matter how many we throw at this problem right now. You could add 10 more ambulances tomorrow, but if they all ended up in the hallway, what's the point? Yeah. So I don't think we've actually talked talked about why why is there a thing called hallway waiting? Like right. what's, what's the process of that? Because it just sounds like, well, you got to just go drop the, the, uh, the, the injured person off, maybe write a form and then leave. So yeah. why, what's, what's going on with the hospitals that way? Yeah. So my job as a paramedic, as I see it, is the emergency care and transportation of sick and injured patients in the community to a hospital. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Now in my view, personal view, and in the view of many experts in the states, including legal experts, the responsibility of the paramedic ends at the doorway of the hospital. So how did it happen? And that's the way it used to be. So picture this, uh, Chris, you're a, you're a nurse at triage. And uh, I walk in with a patient, Carrie and I have a patient, we walk in and, and you say, uh, hey guys, uh, glad you're here. Listen, we're just cleaning a bed for this patient. Can you just wait a couple of minutes? And we go, sure, that's no problem. Yeah. And we come in uh, six months later and uh, Chris, you say, yeah, we've been really busy today. You know, we're just about to get a patient upstairs. So just give me 30 minutes, just wait 30 minutes. And we go, well, I don't know. It's kind of busy out there too, but okay, 30 minutes. Six months later, we come in and you say, listen, we don't have any beds right now. We're really scrambling. We're really busy. Can you take this patient down to CT or down to x-ray and get his leg x-rayed? 
But we go, well, if it'll help, sure. You know, we want to take care of patients. We want to help out our team members. And then a year later, we walk in and Chris says, hey, look, guys, we don't have any room. Just go down the hall and wait. And we go, well, for, well, for how long? Yeah. I'm not sure. What do you mean you're not sure? Like, I don't work in a hospital. I work in the community. I'm a pre-hospital care provider. That's what paramedics do. So I phone my supervisor. He says, well, let me just check. And so he calls me back and says, yeah, you're going to have to wait. Well, for how long? Well, until they have a bed. And that's how it happened. We were frogs in a pot. Yeah. They turned up. Exactly. Just waiting. And they cooked him. I wrote an article. If you, uh, it's again, it's on SlideShare. I wrote it about the moral injury. The paramedics suffer. We used to call it burnout. Now we call it what it really is. It's a moral injury. It's an affront to our core values. I'm sitting in the hospital hallway with a patient who may or may not need some immediate care, but certainly doesn't need any more of my care. And I'm seeing all of my colleagues come in and they say, wow, you know, it took us 40 minutes to get to this guy's house. And now he's really sick and we're on our way to the, to the, uh, to major care back there. But if we'd have just got, that's a, that's a moral injury that's avoidable. Now, how does, how does the hospital justify holding paramedics in the hallway as a band-aid solution for their inability to accept and care for? Um, that gets more complicated and I could talk for a long, again, I worked really hard to be a good team member, uh, to to work with the hospitals, to try to help them get patients. Because I don't want to just drop somebody off and have them get hurt or suffer. We need to find a solution. I have, over the past 10 years, discovered that there is no pre-hospital care. There is no paramedic solution to this problem. Hallway care, number one, is bad care. I don't care who does it. If you've got somebody waiting to see a doctor in a hospital hallway, that's poor care. And I don't think EMS should be any part of it. The hospitals need to fix this. And for them to continue to hold us hostage, I don't even call it hallway waiting anymore or paramedic waiting. It's really paramedics are being held hostage. In the, uh, There's a guy out there who fell off his roof, putting up his Christmas lights. He's got two broken ankles. He's laying in the snow. The fire department's standing there beside him going, "What? Do, we can't move him. He's laying in, I mean, we could move him, but we can't. We don't have the equipment to splint his broken ankles or where's the ambulance? Well, it's 30 minutes away. So what do you do as a fire captain? What do you do? Do you put him in the uh, fire truck and take him to the hospital yourself? That's been done. Yeah. But it's all because the hospital is holding so many of our crews hostage in the hallway. Now, why does that happen? Chris, you're a, you're a unit manager of the hospital big hospital, you got 70 beds in your emerge. And it's seven o'clock in the morning. And you phone Carrie, who's the hospital manager for the whole hospital. And you say, look, I'm overrun here. I got 70 beds, 40 of them are filled with patients who've been admitted. They've been seen by a doctor, they've been diagnosed, they've been treated, admitted to the hospital. I got to get them into the hospital because I need the room in emerge. Mm-hmm. I got a dozen paramedics waiting with patients in the hallway. I got 55 people in the waiting room but I've only got 40 beds that I can turn over or 30 beds. Cause I've got 40 of them filled with, let's get them into the, there's something called access block. And if you look up um, EM emergency uh, medical cases, you'll see a, a podcast by Dr. Howard ovens where he interviews a Calgary emerge doc whose name is Grant Innes. And he says access block is the block they put up to prevent us from moving those admitted patients from emerge into the hospital. 
Now, the hospital is a big and very powerful institution. Uh, they will, they're running at 100% capacity, probably, but they're running at a comfortable rate. I know, and I, don't get me wrong, I know the nurses are busy, housekeeping's busy, et cetera, but this is what we talk about process and, and how we need to change the way we do business so that if you made it a rule that every patient who was admitted had to leave eMERGE immediately and go into the main hospital to be cared for, you'd never have hallway waits. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe you'd never have hallway waits. Mm -hmm. You can't have patients who've been admitted taking up emergency beds simply because the hospital has no room. They have to come up. And if they can't come up with a reason or with a solution rather, fire them. Yeah. Who gets fired at Alberta Health Services? Nobody. You can run a hospital poorly forever and retire and make a great salary. No, we need to hold these people accountable. And like I talked about at the beginning, transparency and accountability. Medical medicine is complicated. Medical medicine is scary because people die, right? If you make a mistake, people die. So they're afraid. They don't want to assume that. Ex but again, somebody's got to have some courage here to make some decisions. Um, so which, which, pardon me for interrupting, which sure. positions within the AHS structure um, would we would we be holding accountable for these types of problems? Okay, like where does this where does the you know I I, I know what it rolls downhill. Absolutely. But, uh, where where should it be landing? Well, let's see. One of their most popular excuses uh, for the hospital is, "Well, we need more long term care beds." Okay, so there aren't any. So now, what's your solution? Mm -hmm. Because right now you've got a 72-year-old guy in a bed in a hospital who's cured. He's better. He had something wrong. He was sick, whatever. He's now feeling better, but you have no place to put him. So you're going to allow him to take up an active treatment bed in a hospital that somebody needs who's yeah. stuck in a merge that's blocking somebody in the hallway or in the waiting room from getting into a merge. You see what I mean? It's yeah. If they can't solve that, fire them. Fire them but nobody gets fired and there's no accountability and certainly there's no transparency. One of the big lies in EMS is that there's a 30% increase in call volume. Well, hang on a sec. Let's be specific. That's in the urban centers. Mm -hmm. RJ Sigurdsson came to one of our town hall meetings. He's the MLA who's now the parliamentary secretary for EMS reform. He said he's run the stats in his district. There's no 30% increase in call volume. And he wants to know why it's okay for the city of, or for the AHS dispatch to move his Okotoks ambulance to the city repeatedly yeah. to deal with an urban problem that AHS can't solve. And so they're just going to take the ambulance out of one of his constituencies to cover. And again, uh, this kind of lack of transparency, somebody shows up at a town council meeting we're in a fantastic uniform with a bunch of gold leaf clusters and, and uh, tells you he's got years of experience. We're doing everything we could possibly do. And uh, how does town council refute that? Well, they asked the EMS citizen action group for the information that they've foiped on what's really wrong. Yeah. How often the crews are held in the hospital hallway. Let's look at root causes. How many of those crews were flexed to other districts? How many of those crews, emergency crews, are doing non-emergent transfers 
like uh, somebody with a broken arm who needs to go to the city for surgery, you don't need the only emergency ambulance for 1,400 kilometers in any direction. Mm-hmm. Call an Uber. Call it. Call a private. Oh, yeah. careful. Yeah. Hang on. Did I just say a bad word? <laughs> Call a private ambulance. Yeah. I was I was going to ask about that because to me, that's a logical thing. Why are why are there not private ambulances around or private services? Why could why can't we not make an Uber ambulance? Let's let's, let's hear Tell the me. answer to this yeah. one. Yeah. So Aaron Paramedics is a really good example. Very professional service. They use paramedics with the same level of training that I have. They have offered repeatedly to AHS to uh, to station ambulances in communities where they could be useful. Like they'll station one in Strathmore and it'll serve Brooks and Strathmore. So if you've got somebody lying in a hospital bed who literally needs transportation yeah. because they got a hot, hot appendix, they need to go for surgery and there's no emergency ambulance available, even if there is emergency ambulance available, I don't want to see it being used to transport somebody who's going for surgery, who's stable, mm-hmm. who's a private. They're there. So uh, brave hospital administrators, and there are a few of them, like the one that works at Strathmore or the one that works at South Health Campus in Emerge, mm-hmm. will phone Aaron directly and say, look, I can't wait for AHS to send me an AHS ambulance. I need three ambulances right away to move patients. Can you help me? Aaron Paramedical will send them down. They'll transport those patients where they need to go. They send the bill directly to Edmonton. They get paid. But what AHS won't do is give them a vendor number so that everything they do is a one-off. Yeah, we'll call you again when we need you. And let's face it. how How does a company, a private ambulance company that's working really hard to help, manage to staff every day for what they don't know is coming. That's right. That's right. Right. So, I mean, they, it might take them a couple hours to call people in. Why make it difficult? Um, Why won't AHS work with these people? I'll tell you why, because HSAA, the union Hmm. doesn't want privates involved. Hmm. They will, they scream at the top of their lungs when you say, and I'm going to get phone calls when this gets uh, aired. I was, uh, when, uh, I was a QP member, of course, before uh, HS took over, yeah. and uh, I never, ever did sign my union card. I wow! Was, so, what is what is that? Sign my card. What yeah. is that organization you just referred to? HSA is the Health Sciences Association of Alberta. Now, that's a union that fights, and let's face it, they managed to get me a contract. I got paid very well the whole time I was there, but I didn't like what they did with my money politically. I didn't like some of the uh, causes they supported. Um, and, uh, so I refused to sign my union card and I was grateful when the, uh, legislation came in that they couldn't use my union dues for political causes. So, but what H, what HSAA does, what they should be doing is protecting their paramedics and they're not probably 40% of the paramedics and the, uh, might even be over 40%, um, of the paramedics in the Calgary zone right now are booked off with physical and mental health injuries. And it's from overwork, mm-hmm. no rest, not a chance to eat, or even go to the bathroom sometimes without having somebody, your ambulance, say you show up for work at uh, seven o'clock at night, you're on the night shift, the ambulance pulls in, you're checking your truck and your supervisor says, hey, you guys got to go right away. We got to get you on the air. You got There's calls happening. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, I, I haven't checked my truck. I got to make sure I got the right equipment. I got enough fuel, that the tires are full, that the... Yep. Uh, all those things. He's, nope, just get out there, check it at the next, you know, right from the beginning of your shift, 
Wow. Shoved out the door, get to work, call after call after call. And uh, you do this four or five days in a row. You get home two hours late, two shifts out of four. Your kids are already in bed. Your wife's wondering why you're so tired and angry all the time. This is happening repeatedly. They, you know, this kind of pace in an emergency uh, environment. And you add on to that all of the calls that, that, uh, that these paramedics do that are, that are really horrific, some of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no chance for a debriefing, no chance to get something to eat. It's uh, yeah, that could be a lot, a lot to process at the end of the day or the end of the week for sure. Yeah, you just stuff it down, Keep pushing it down. Yeah, I can't even imagine that. No. Yeah. So, so, is there uh, there must be some sort of uh, some sort of something that's offered to help paramedics deal with those types of things? Is there is there something like that? Sure. There's a peer support team. There's a uh, CISD, Critical Incident Stress Debriefing Process. They had a, a program called uh, Road to Mental Health Readiness, R2MR. Um, it's pretty funny. They called us in. This was several years ago. They called us in for this R2MR, Road to Mental Health Readiness Resiliency Training. And uh, the, the person who introduced the course was a senior leadership member. And he came in and he said, okay, we're all glad you're here. He said, one of the things we're not going to talk about today are operational issues. And we looked at each other around this boardroom table. There were a dozen of us. We're going, well, hang on a sec. Operational issues are the biggest stressor yes. in our lives is the way this place is run and why we're all exhausted. So you're actually going to talk to us about our mental health and being resilient, but you don't want to talk about why? Because most of these things are your fault. We'd like to talk to you about what you're doing that make our lives so difficult. Yeah. So. Something that people may forget every once in a while is that, uh, well, what I think is our first responders, police, CMS, firefighters, uh, though even military, they generally have some sort of a compassion that, that, that makes them want to help people. You don't choose to be a, a paramedic unless you want to help people. Correct. So now you have these compassionate people doing these jobs where they want to help people. Um, they're they're some of the best people among us, and they have to see and witness some of the worst and most depraved things that mm -hmm. ever happens to people. So that's uh, you know that's why I asked about those programs because I've I have friends who are firefighters in Golden, and I mean I'm sure you're familiar with traffic accidents and specifically oh, yeah. in the mountains. Like the, some of the stuff that he's seen, it would make uh, a lot of people just snap. And I suppose that shows in statistics. I mean, there's in our first responders, their instances of uh, suicide and self-harm are actually higher than the rest of us. Probably maybe, maybe to do with something like this. So that's why I asked about those programs and with all the other stuff going on, um, are those programs, are they effective? Are they doing what they're supposed to do? Well, I, I did a horrific call back in 2019. We interrupted a rape in progress and prevented a murder. And uh, it was an awful call. She was very badly injured. And we took her to the hospital. And at the end of the shift, as I was leaving, the uh, my supervisor said, oh, by the way, uh, the fire department crew that attended on that call, they're going to have a CISD, a, a debriefing tomorrow, critical incident stress debriefing. Uh, if you want to join, it's tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. And I said, well, I get off tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, so I'm not staying an extra hour to go do a debriefing with the fire department, no matter how good it is, it's uh, or how nice those are, what a great bunch of guys they are. I'm not, uh, I'm gonna go home. He said, okay. 
And that was the end of the conversation. My partner and I uh, actually ended up debriefing the, uh, the crew that uh, backed us up on that call. Uh, the next night, uh, at the end of the night, because they were really upset. And you know what? I had a great partner for that call, and I'm just so grateful. He's a, he's a rock, very strong Christian man. And uh, you know what he said to me at the end of that? He said, you know, God's not going to give us a call that we can't handle. Yeah. He says if we give it to him. And I just, uh, he's just such a terrific partner, very strong moral code. Um, and he's still working. He's still working now? Oh, he's still working. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, and I've had a number of great partners through the years. But like I say, you're, you have a number of things you can depend on when you're working in this kind of business. Uh, your partner is one. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't talk to their families about what they see because they're, they're just not, that's not something they share with. Yeah. with uh, so they share it amongst themselves. And uh, it'd be nice if we had some leadership that, uh, that gave us the time we need sometimes to process some of these calls and, allowed us access. You know, it's no good having these programs if we can't access them. Yeah. And I know that the people who work in peer support, they try really hard. They have good hearts and they want to make this work. But, uh, and I can do, a, I can do a hard call. I can do um, calls that are horrible, but uh, I need time to process them. I need some support for when I, for when I need it. And I also need some leadership yeah. to make sure I get the, the rest and the training and the, uh, ability to uh, to do these calls again, right? I just can't do these calls one after the other, after the other, after the other. That's I was going to say. So, is that typical that you would have some sort of a break uh, between those types of calls? And if so, then you have to have a, another team that backs you up on them, right? So, there's lots of reasons. Emergency work is is uh, really stressful. It's really hard, and it's really important. So, if uh, if your unit hour utilization creeps up above 40 or 50%. In other words, if you spend more than half your time actually doing calls, mm -hmm. it's going to destroy you. Yeah. Because you need that other 50% of the time to train, yeah. to rest, to eat, to yeah. you know make a phone call to your sister. But if you, the first thing to go when it gets really busy is training. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, we've canceled training for this week. Uh, we'll try to do some training next week. Oh, we're too busy again next week. So these skills you learn, you know, for intubating a patient, putting a tube down somebody's throat, yeah. you've got to practice that. And if there's new tools or procedures coming out, they've got to pull you out of service and make sure everybody gets trained on those. But again, yeah. if there's no time, yeah. we're too busy because we're disorganized because we're doing everything that we shouldn't be doing. We're sitting in the hallway, we're transporting non-emergent patients, we're flexing to other districts yeah. and leaving our home communities empty. Um, yeah can't you, you can't function like that for long and so literally the department and in by default the union as well as is uh is letting down the entire industry allowing the crews to be destroyed yeah. the workforce is being destroyed now is the are these sorts of problems only happening in alberta or are they happening in every province like do you have that commu communication with others Right. So that's another excuse that management, you know, this is a global problem or this is a national problem. Yeah. Like, okay, so you have poor leadership everywhere. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's no excuse. Yeah. You have, you have guys in charge of this who can't solve it and they're still employed. Yeah. That's no excuse. And that's why when I go to places like Israel and I work, yeah. it's just so different over there. 
I mean, they, they literally have seven or 8,000 full-time staff and 20,000 volunteers. Wow. I know 20,000. Now yeah. the youngest person ever on my ambulance who has learned doing a ride along was 16 years old over there. What are 16 year olds here doing? I mean, how many people stuff? live in Israel? Playing games. Oh, it's, I think it's nine or 10,000. Um, Magen Vita Dome serves the whole country. Um, they have lots of ambulances. They have four helicopters. They have a lot of medicycles, they call them, for a fast response. They get very little money from the Israeli government. Not one shekel goes directly to operations. They uh, survive on donations and billing. But here's the, here's the rub. Picture this. Uh, I'm in Jerusalem. I'm in an ambulance. There's three other people in it, student, couple of uh, paramedics. And uh, we get a call. We're four minutes away. We pull up outside this bakery. And there's this uh, 40-year-old guy, kind of heavy set. He's got his motorcycle behind, beside him. He's got the helmet on the seat. He's starting an IV on this guy who's sitting in a chair out in front of the bakery. And uh, we roll up. I say, hi. He's got his uniform jacket on. He says, hi. He says, uh, this is a 30-year-old gentleman who's a diabetic. He was having some uh, what we appears to be a uh, hypoglycemic reaction. He needs sugar. He says, I'm just going to start an IV. Um, give him some D50, dextrose. And uh, I say, whoa, I said, we're like four minutes away. Where did you come from? He said, oh, my office. My office is right over there. I and said, he's a volunteer. Office. I said, your office, what do you do? He says, I'm a lawyer. What? So when, I get, when I get a call, when you guys get dispatched, and he says, and it's within, uh, and I'm one of the five closest available responders. I just leave yeah. my, he says, I'll get an alert on my phone. It says, here's a call for a diabetic patient who's not alert. And it's here, and you're here. Can you go? And you hit yes. He says, I put down my pen. I put on my helmet. I get on my medicycle, which is paid for by Magenda Vita Dome. He says, I ride over. I help. And then I go back to work. And he gets this notification on his phone? Yeah. So uh, we try to do this here. We have tried to involve first responders, volunteers. You know, uh, let's say, Carrie, you and I take our wives to a movie. Yeah. And, you know, we don't put our phone or we put our phone on silent because we don't want to uh, interrupt the movie. But if we got a, if let's say somebody down in the lobby, a nine-year-old girl is choking on popcorn. Yeah. And if uh, as soon as the ambulance was dispatched, I'd get an alert on my phone. It would override the silence feature. You and I would get up and go down and help right away. Yeah. Maybe save a life. Yeah. Otherwise, we not might not know until after the movie's over and we're leaving, and somebody would say, "Hey, you know, a nine-year-old girl just choked to death here." Yeah, yeah, right. That's, so that's what happens now. It's it's a no-brainer, and uh, AHS studied studied. They did a six-month business uh, case study on whether or not, and they came up with nine or ten reasons it wouldn't work, and so they flushed it. Wow. But uh, I know a lot of people who would absolutely want to be notified of somebody on their block or down the street from uh, from where they were having dinner was having a cardiac arrest and if they could help. I can and say, you know, this, this just ties in with, uh, I would say Alberta and BC and probably Saskatchewan, the majority, I, I think the majority of us probably have some sort of first aid training just because industry generally requires some sort of first aid training. So why not utilize that? Well, it's because the government wants control of everything to do with AHS. They don't want any volunteer corps in the rural communities. They don't want any first responders as, you know, respond. What about FOIP, Chris? What if I 
what if I came to your house and I found out you were Chris and you owned a whistle stop and you know what? Oh yes. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It sounds right. like, but it sounds it, like it's not about health as much as it is about a business model. It's a, it's fear. I mean, it's not public service anymore. It's a, it's become an, it, what's the word? <laughs> uh, There's so many I could use. Yes. Uh, I mean, federally we have a dictatorship. There's no question about that. Uh, with this new government here, I listen, I can't say enough good things. You know, Danielle Smith actually came to one of our EMS crisis town hall meetings. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Heard, yeah. She came with uh, Zane Gray to yeah. our surgery meeting. RJ Sigurdsson came to four of our town halls. You that know, was he, actually my next question. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that you have some really good ideas as to things we could implement that would improve our health services and our emergency services in this province. Am I right in saying that? Immediately. Okay. So if the premier was listening right now and senior AHS executives are listening right now, um, what would you say to them? Like what kind of things would you uh, suggest that the province look at doing in order to benefit Albertans? Well, you heard that AHS put out their 10 point plan, right? Did you hear about the 10 point plan? I know about oh, their tendril plan they put out a while ago, but I don't know about the 10 point plan. They had a 10 point plan to fix EMS and uh, RJ Sigurdsson uh, and Tracy Allard, who's another uh, MLA from Northern yeah. Alberta, were asked to chair the EMS advisory committee and they were soliciting suggestions. And uh, of course they've all signed non-disclosure agreements. We're all waiting for the result and final report of this, uh, uh, of this committee. And, uh, they published this 10 point plan. Anyways, I, so we made our own 10 point plan. Mm -hmm. It's actually 11 points because the first point is you have to fire every single member of the EMS senior leadership team before you do anything else. Ooh. They are, they are so toxic. Their, their lack of leadership. I can't think of, if you were to ask 10 medics on the street, you know, what do you think of the senior leadership team? they would say words like absent, incompetent, uh, uncooperative, punitive. So that'd be the first thing, flush them all. So who Second, protects them? Sorry? Who protects them? The union? The senior leadership team, AHS. Our ah. chief paramedic serves at the pleasure of the senior. He is in, eight, in 2009, they made him chief paramedic, maybe for life. I don't know. It's not the like there's a term or anything. He's not like a police chief or a fire chief. He, he just seems to to be there. Uh, we never see him. He doesn't. Uh, Why are there yeah, not the buddy system? For, well, Why because, are there not terms for any of these these sort of positions, especially well, being so high up? Like uh, you know, like the chief medical officer, I, as far as I'm concerned, should be voted in. Number one and uh, number two should be on a term four years. Oh, and if you're not doing a good job, get the hell out. Yeah, nobody, nobody's ever going to vote for, they're, they're never going to let that happen. They love having control. Yeah. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? I, I mean, I hear, we hear rumors all the time that the, the AHS board is about to be flushed. Yes. And I spoke at a Freedom Talk conference, one of Danny Hozek's uh, Freedom Talk yeah. conferences. Have you ever been to any of those? Or I have not, no. I'll, I'll send you a link. Anyways, Danielle Smith spoke right after me. Yeah. And she talked about how she would, if she was in charge, this was a couple of years ago, yeah. uh, dismantle uh, the AHS leadership. 
And rather than have it be three sections top down, she would turn it on its side, break it into three equal parts and make each one of them accountable and transparent. Yeah. So that's online. You can look it up. Daniel Smith speaks at freedom talk. Um, But uh, so that's would be the first thing I would do Um, next. The next 10 points are, is uh, cancel all pending discipline against paramedics. Uh, There's a paramedic in Airdrie. His name's Ryan Middleton. It's no mystery. He won't talk right now because of all the discipline he's facing. He's been suspended four or five times now for speaking out. He'll simply file a FOIP request, find out how often the ambulances are not available in his home community of Airdrie, and then he'll talk to a reporter. And so they'll call him in and they'll suspend him. And he's got to go through the grievance process to arbitration. And quite frankly, at the end of this, I hope he gets a big check because of all the harassment that he's been subjected to. Um, so that'd be the first thing I do is end all pending discipline. The second thing was uh, you got to end hallway waits. Yeah. You got to end them. The, as far as I'm concerned, as a paramedic, my responsibility for care of these patients ends at the door of the hospital. If you think about it, hospitals in Alberta, these are tertiary care centers in a first world country. This should be the safest place on the planet to leave a patient who's sick or injured. Yeah, really. Are you telling me there's nobody in this building? I'm sorry, there's probably 10 people in a meeting somewhere within. 40 feet of triage that could put whatever piece of paper down and come out and actually do some patient care. You know what we're faced with, with the level of middle management that uh, yeah. it's obscene and uh, you know, do, do things end flexing. I'm sorry, but the, the ambulance for Okotoks, those people are no less important than the people in Calgary. If, if you're going to move the Okotoks ambulance to Calgary every day for five or six hours, don't lie to the people in Okotoks and tell them, okay, well, we're adding another resource. And what they'll do is they'll put another truck in Okotoks and then they'll take both of them for the whole day to Calgary. It's, it's false. Um, and third, of course, uh, secondary triage, you have to start, you have to stop using emergency ambulances for minor complaints. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, if you took a limo every day to the store to pick up your order, That'd be crazy. Why would you use a limo? Yeah. It'd be expensive. I mean, if you drove a picker truck to go to the store, Chris. Yeah. Well, I may have done that before. <laughs> there you go. But it's like, it's like taking a, it's like taking a limo to the grocery store. You don't need an ambulance to get to the hospital all the time. And I kid you not, I, I can, there's been hundreds of times in my career, maybe thousands where I've pulled up in an ambulance in front of somebody's house and they've walked out and gotten into the truck. Wow. Yeah. If they can do that, they can definitely take a car or, or oh, get a ride. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But let's make, yeah. let's make some effort yeah. to, uh, you know, paramedics are, are quite able and have for years wanted to, you show up at somebody's house and he meets you at the door and you say, what's wrong? He says, you know, I've had this pain in my stomach for two days. I said, okay, well, are you short of breath? Are you faint? No, no. He says, just got this pain in my stomach. I said, well, there's three cars in your driveway that appears to be your wife and your adult son. And I can see the hospital from your house. Wow. Why did you call an ambulance? And he says, well, I want to get in right away. I just doesn't happen. No. I mean, it's so that's the difference. Now, again, we talk about public education and public responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. You can try to educate people on when to call an ambulance, but let's face it. Lots of times they don't know what they need. They just need some help. Yeah. And if, if you're not sure, you have to send somebody out to check. Yeah. If we get there and they, and I can say, listen, I've taken your blood pressure, listen to your chest, you're fine, stay yeah. home. 
we're going to cancel right now because I need to be back in service right now for somebody in my community who might be seriously hurt or injured. I don't have time to take a minor patient to the hospital. Sit here. I'm going to let dispatch know we're going to send a car for you in the next three or four hours. Oh, great. I'll just get my wife to drive me. Great. We're canceled. Go. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Call us back if you get worse. Changes. Yeah. Yeah. Always here to help you. We're not, and this isn't a, never 100% accurate, right? Patients can get worse. Mm -hmm. But let's face it out there right now, there's somebody who is worse, who is really sick, and there's no truck available. Yeah. So we've got a list of these 10 things, and I'll send it to you for all the things paramedics shouldn't be doing, all the things that, that you should be doing. Let's get some volunteer. Let's get a, a youth yeah. corps going so yeah. that we can start training people. Uh, junior paramedic program start. Do you know what the slogan is now for Alberta Health EMS? No. Well, pre-2009, the slogan for our paramedics here in Calgary was caring for the community. Mm-hmm. And we were quite proud of that. And we had the medic moose and we would go out and do PR events. And, uh, you know, we'd go to a run or to an autism awareness event and uh hi we're paramedics our motto is carrying in israel the motto is saving lives period mm-hmm. saving lives you know what our motto is now yeah we don't have one we literally don't have one hs has a different motto every year depending on yeah what mm-hmm. meeting they've had but uh wow yeah um, is broken guys what would, what, what would the motto be right now Hold oh. the line. No, no. I was gonna say hold the line, but I mean more like just stay, stay put. Uh, we'll we'll come and get you eventually. So George Porter and I, he's another old retired paramedic, who we've been working again uh, with this with Daniel Smith and R.J. Simpson and anybody else, or, or Sigurdsson, anybody who would listen to us for years. George said, "Listen, why don't you and I just go?" He says, "I'll buy an ambulance and we'll put some equipment in it." Yeah, and we'll go down to Nanton. Now, Nanton is, uh, they have an ambulance in town, but it frequently gets pulled away to Claire's home or High River to do transfer. So it's almost never there. He says, we'll go sit somewhere on the side of the road and we'll hang out a shingle and we'll say, listen, we're not good, but we're here. We're not good, but we're here. That's like Carrie and I's motto. (laughs) (laughs) We're two old paramedics. We have some equipment, but we have what a lot of people need and don't have too often now, which is transport. I mean, if your mom slips and falls in the driveway on the ice and she's laying there for 45 minutes, that's too long. Yeah. So some communities that where we've done these citizen action group uh, town hall meetings, uh, some of these communities have said that we've looked at each other and said, well, why don't we organize some kind of a transport service so we can start moving patients if there's no ambulance coming? Aha. Uh-huh. And there's the question. Now, why don't more communities have their own ambulance services? Why can't I just buy an ambulance, hire paramedics, and do this? Because it's illegal. Ah, there we go. Made it illegal. They have, uh, you've heard of EMS, but you probably haven't heard of EHS. EHS is emergency health services. It's a division of AHS, EHS is, that handles governance. So, Chris, if you did buy an ambulance and you hung out a shingle, Chris's ambulance service, they would come and they would check out your equipment and your license and your uh, your vehicle, your qualifications, all those things. And if there was anything missing, they'd shut you down. Well, I made a formal complaint to Alberta Transportation about the condition of the ambulances that are on the road right now. Yeah, yeah. 
And I, I wrote it out and I sent it in. I got a call from a nice lady and she said, I've been assigned to your case. And I said, okay, um, these are all ambulances. Cause I didn't make that specific. I just said, there's all these vehicles with bald tires and they're 12,000 kilometers past where they should have been done sent in for a safety check. So she phoned me right away. I said, well, these are ambulances. She said, Oh, I better let you talk to my manager. <laughs> so I talked to Kathleen Braybrook, who is the senior Alberta health or Alberta, Alberta transportation. She told me, she said, Don, any other company, I could book them out of service right now, but it's AHS. They're an essential service. I have no control over them at all. Wow. We made a complaint to the Alberta ombudsman and you can look this up online. Uh, about the way AHS was being run and long response times and the condition of it. She refused to take, she actually went on the news and she said, I can't investigate Alberta Health Services. I don't, that's not within my purview. But you're the ombudsman who can. That's who's supposed to do it. Yes. Well, she refused and it's online. You can find it. In fact, uh, she said, no, AHS is responsible for investigating themselves. I did say a couple of years ago that it appears to be to me that AHS is a tyrannical um, dictatorship and not to the benefit of Albertans. And every day it seems like they're proving guys like me right. So I have an idea after what you just said. I just I just want to start an ambulance service. How bad? Do you want Pretty to bad. To I mean, I, I, I want to do anything I can do to poke that bear and show them that no, you know, if you're not going to do things to the benefit of Albertans, then Albertans will do it and yeah. we'll leave you behind. And well, actually, you know what? We're not going to leave you behind. We're going to shut you down and destroy you because yeah. you're hurting us. Now, Chris, you're geographically right in the middle of like Lacombe, uh, Stetler, Camrose, and maybe Red Deer. Let's just mm -hmm. say that as a, as a kind of a, a triangle or a, a square. Is there any ambulance service other than what I just listed? Well, okay, so I'm going to say the fire department and the first responders in Alex, yeah, fantastic. Okay, like those and guys and like, girls uh, are—they're amazing. Yeah, uh, ambulances. I think we're we come from Lacombe, Stetler, Camrose, or one of those areas. I don't think, I don't know if Basha has an ambulance service or not. Well, it could come from anywhere. It could come from further. It could come from Red. It could. From yeah, Brave. exactly. I mean, we could have an ambulance coming from Edmonton if there's nothing available. Yeah. I went up to uh, Sylvan Lake in Red Deer yesterday, and I spoke to a couple of paramedics who are very upset that, because uh, Associated, run right, they have a contracted uh, service there, Associated Ambulance. Okay. So there are a few places in Alberta where they have a contract service. And these are very, these are young, bright, capable, enthusiastic paramedics who work for a company that cares. Associated Ambulance wants to provide good service. Yeah. They, want, they, they have good trucks, they have good equipment, they meet all the qualifications and they manage to make a deal with Alberta Health so that they can stay in business and run an ambulance service. I, you know, I can't say enough good things about them. HS is pressuring that, uh, those, uh, that organization to change the staffing schedule, okay? Which staffing schedule, you, your time off, your time on, that's precious, right? Your, your work-life balance. Chris, you run a restaurant, so you don't have any work-life balance because you're, <laughs> no, right? That's true. Yeah. But for, for most people, that's, you know, the time you spend away from work is important. HS wants them to change their shifting patterns so they are, have more cars available during the day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 
and they want the crews to work more night shifts, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. They want to double the, or they want to increase the amount of time these guys are spending on, on night shifts. And you know why that is? It's not for the benefit of people in the community. It's so that the hospital has more transfer ambulances available to move patients Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Wow. So yeah. this problem is hospital driven. We've allowed hospitals to dictate pre-hospital care and tell us where to place and how to use our ambulances. Um, there is a slide presentation that a doctor, uh, Judson Barkhurst and, uh, director, EMS director, Randy Brixa put together. It's only 10 slides. It's available on my SlideShare site. And it's the presentation they gave to the college or the, uh, Cape conference. It's the, uh, emergency physicians group. And they talk about the 41 things that they tried to do to minimize or mitigate or fix hallway waiting. Yeah. None of them worked. The answer to ending hallway waiting is you end hallway waiting. Yeah. And on slide 10, it says right there, it says, we believe the answer to ending hallway waiting is to have transfer of care from the paramedic to the hospital occur at triage every time. Hmm. That was in 2018. So they know what the answer is. And we've told them repeatedly what the answer is. So have, the, have you ever had these conversations or communicated at all with either uh, Minister Shandro when he was the yep. uh, Minister of Health or Minister Coppin? I sat in Shandro's office uh, two weeks after he got elected. Mm-hmm. We had a great conversation. He's a very intelligent man. I quite like him a lot. He assigned his uh, EA to come on a ride along with me. I took him on a ride along. We, he saw some patients. He saw some. Uh, he saw some pretty uh, interesting patients, and uh, he also saw what happens at triage. And uh, he went back to the minister, and and uh, Minister Shandor called me and said, "Thanks very much." He says, "What can we do to solve this problem?" And I sent him a whole bunch of information, and it. You know what happened? He ran up against AHS. Now you would think that the minister of health would be yes. able to tell AHS what to do, and the way he described it to me, and I'm. He par- this is paraphrased what he told me. He said, Don, my job, I can't micromanage what happens at AHS. I can't just walk in and say, end hospital waiting. He said, I give them broad strokes of what I want them to accomplish, and they use their people and their expertise to make that happen. But in reality, and I've talked to many politicians about this, AHS will listen to what the minister is saying. And they'll say, okay, yeah, we'll get right on that. And then then they'll either not do it at all, like the thousand beds. Yeah, or they'll yeah, or they'll do it for three months and then say, well, that doesn't work. I'm not going to do that anymore, and then not do anything else, or they'll half do it, or pretend they're doing. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's all. Uh, and of course, by then people they they just wait for the government to change. HS is a is a forget about the the HS board. Um, I don't. Again, I never understood exactly what went on up there, but the bureaucrats who sit below them and the middle managers, they're the ones who run AHS. And it's so hard to make any changes. They just, uh, they just wait you out. So who needs to be fired? I know it's a tough question. Well, no, let's start at the top. Uh, Daniel Smith has talked before about firing the entire AHS board and then having a commissioner that responds, that reports to her. Yeah. And then you've got to start making people accountable. And I would start right at the top. 
I would start with all of those senior leadership. Let's face it, doctors run a lot of uh, a lot of this. Uh, it's funny because you hear doctors complain and people can't get a family doctor, yet healthcare is run by doctors. Mm-hmm. And if you look at people like Dr. Francois Belanger, he's been running uh, portions of the Calgary Zone and hospitals for years. And as things get worse, he stays employed. I don't know how that happens. Maybe we don't actually need doctors. This is, this is again, way above my pay grade. Don't forget, you're talking to an old paramedic here. Yeah. Simply seen uh, things crumble and has maybe noticed that there's a difference between symptoms and root causes. Stop complaining about response time. Start figuring out why ambulances aren't available to do the things you want them to do. So um, a lot of people need to be fired. And if it, when it came to AHS EMS, and I can say this without, uh, I'll defend this to anybody. I said, you got to fire senior leadership. You got to, you got to wipe it. And you know what? You got to take the next level out as well. They've all got to be fired because God forbid we end up with the same people yeah. that senior leadership promoted replacing senior leadership. This has been the problem that politicians have made a lot way back. Uh, uh, I can think of Christine Silverberg, who was city police chief uh, mm-hmm. way back in the day. She got rid of all of the deputy chiefs, but then she promoted people below them who were just like them. So no, there needs to be a sea change and uh, we need to make them accountable, transparent, and uh, we need to focus on what's uh, what really needs to what really needs to change, which is, uh, well, everything in EMS from the beginning, from the time it's answered, call is answered and dispatch till the time the crew leaves the hospital is broken. Yeah. Is, is broken. there enough people to replace all those folks? Enough good people waiting in the wings that could take those many, jobs? Well, how many supervisors do we need on duty in Calgary at any one time? I'll tell you right now, we've got way more that we need. Hmm. Let's start with them. Um, and how many of these, uh, I mean, really, what, uh, how difficult would it be to replace them? I don't know. For some of them, you could put a plant in their chair, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And uh, wouldn't that be funny? Have a Zoom meeting? <laughs> some oh, that would be awesome. But uh, again, if, if they're failing, something has to change. And if, if nothing changes, then those people have to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, if this was if this was private healthcare and you were a plant sitting in a in a, a chair, you'd be gone. Well, and think about all the people that are sitting at home right now. All the paramedics who have uh, physical and mental health injuries. Yeah, lots of them won't come back. They'll fight coming back because of this. It's the system that destroyed them. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of jobs that they could do uh, that would be worthwhile. Um, there's. Uh, Again, we've got a whole research division. We've got a, this really frustrates me. You know, you get called, he says, we're going to have a research symposium. We're going to spend all day talking about EMS research, but we won't talk for at all for not even one minute about the real problems in this, uh, in this, or we'll talk about culture. They did a big culture survey and they released uh, this four part slideshow of, of, of just culture and what our culture, and didn't talk at all. Nothing and nothing got fixed. We're still sitting in the hallway. We're still responding to calls from too far away. We're still transporting patients that emergency crews shouldn't be transporting. So we need somebody in there who really knows how to fix these things. Would you come That's, out of retirement for that? In a heartbeat. Yeah. But how much of that can I affect? I mean, 
if I was in charge of dispatch, I'd walk in and I'd say, okay, we're going to stop doing quality assurance right now. Right now, they, uh, somebody listens to those recordings of all those calls and they score them and they're quite meticulous. And if you don't get 100%, well, that's a cause for concern. But most of these are really good people who are good at their jobs and, and are capable of helping people that call in for help. Um, but here's the problem. If you micromanage those people, if you oppress them, pretty soon they'll start asking the questions you want to ask, but their heart won't be in it. Mm -hmm. And if response, just think if you're, uh, if you're a dispatcher, call taker, let's say, and you're talking to somebody on the phone whose dad is really short of breath, and you look at the screen and you see the ambulance is 40 minutes away, and you know you're going to do that all day long because that part yeah. of the system is broken, yeah. that'll tear your heart out too. We've got a lot of people missing in action from dispatch too. So you know what? Let's, let's fix this whole thing. Let's put those ambulances back on the street where they belong. Let's stop trying to fix a broken hospital because we don't belong there in any way, shape, or form. Mm in the hallway. That's just, uh, I mean, it, it's all connected. Yeah, of course, but, uh, let's start training people. Let's get them off on time. Let's mandate that if you leave the hospital at the end of your shift and your shift is over, you go straight home. Yeah. Not you're going to deviate because somebody got a cut finger and needs transport and you're the closest ambulance. There's nobody else available. That's crazy. That happens all the time happens all the time crews now i kid you not if uh if i'm at the hospital and it's six o'clock i'm going to turn on the radio in my ambulance i'm going to listen to how busy it is i'm going to see if there's any other crews out there that are available then i'm going to drive out of the ambulance bay and i'm going to make sure i'm pointed south on a main road towards my hall yeah. and then i'm going to hit the clear button and i'm going to try to race home before they can give me another bullshit call yeah before I can book that truck off at the station and get out of it and go, that's it, I'm out. I mean, that is a terrible way to, the other, I mean, let's face it, every paramedic, if he's really needed, would work an extra shift or an extra call, an extra hour. That's, yeah. and we know that's part of the job. It's part of the job for fire police. Yeah. Um, but if you do that every night, and if the only reason you're doing these extra calls on top of the end of your shift is uh, because of the system is broken and, uh, and there's not enough crew pretty soon there's no amount of money that yeah i get hey don you're getting double time if you no, i don't want it i yeah. literally don't want it yeah. i'm exhausted and i'm frustrated and it's over i want to go home hmm. wow sounds like a big job big task well and you know what if you had several capable people and you did each and uh how do you eat an elephant right one yeah, bite, bite at a time, at a time. Right? yeah one bite at a time. Start fixing the things. Our 10-point plan, like get rid of everybody who's not helping. And that's all the senior leadership. Cancel all pending discipline because most of it's bullshit. Did you guys did you guys see the uh, news story, the ambulance that put a tow rope on their ambulance to a vehicle and pulled it out of the way so some emergency crews could get up the uh, ramp during that? No, last but I bet you they got in trouble, didn't they? They are being investigated with the night of possible. Wow. It's just, yeah. it's ridiculous. And disciplining Ryan Middleton for simply foiping information and giving it to a reporter yeah. and saying, in my own personal opinion, and I don't represent EMS, I think that what we're doing is wrong. Uh, that's That doesn't seem to me to be something that a man with a wife and three small children should have to worry about. 
in a just organization. It's not, it's not right that he be muffled and silenced. Um, and he's, he, he's a great medic and a great man. He That's interesting because AHS actually has policies and rules that uh, say that if you, if you are reporting something or being a whistleblower, bringing up a concern that under no circumstances, are you as anybody allowed to uh, make you fearful for doing that? Like they're very, very strict on that. As a matter of fact, Dr. Mackis, uh, he was, he went through a tribunal over that. Yeah. But well, external is a different story, isn't it? The government's really good at saying one thing and doing another. And if you watch that uh, documentary, it's only 30 minutes long. Yeah. Broken system. Yeah. EMS crisis in Alberta. At the very end, Kathy Lee, the journalist from CTV, interviews Chief Sandbeck. And she says to him, you know, a lot of paramedics won't talk to me because they're afraid of being disciplined. Is that happening? And he literally said to her, no, I don't believe there's any paramedics that are currently being disciplined for speaking out. And then she cuts to a picture of Ryan Middleton <laughs> and the FOIP document, the document that they FOIPed about Ryan getting disciplined signed by the chief. Like literally it's, I don't know how the guy goes to work every day. She literally caught him. Yeah. In a lot. And yeah. It's, it happens every day in government and there's no accountability. Um, what do you do? How do you hold these people accountable when there is no one? The ombudsman won't. Alberta Transportation won't hold them accountable. Uh, I made a talk. I made a speech in 2017 to the Alberta College of Paramedics, and I said, "Look, I pay dues to you guys, $500 a year, so I can have a license to practice. Mm -hmm. All I want you to do is publicly state that hallway waits are bad for patients and paramedics." They yeah. wouldn't do it. I traveled to the uh, Quebec City uh, conference in 2018. I solicited donations of no more than $10 from each paramedic. I said, I just need, people were offering me 50 bucks. I said, I just need airfare and a place to stay, yeah. but I want your support. Give me 10 bucks or five bucks and I'll put it in a pile. I'll fly it. And I made a statement to the Paramedic uh, Association of Canada. I said, I spoke at their meeting and I said, listen, I want you guys to step up and say hallway waits are bad for patients and they're bad for paramedics and paramedics shouldn't be in the hallway looking after patients. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And so here we are. Um, if you go to my SlideShare site and look at the ambulance bay report we did uh, on the conditions of the ambulance bay, you'll see some horrifying pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, spine boards covered in blood, leaning up against the walls, soiled linen. Wow. Uh, garbage uh the ambulance bays are treated like a are treated like a a common area that anybody can leave stuff in when in fact they're tertiary care they're secondary treatment areas uh prior to getting into the tertiary care center i can be delivering a baby in the ambulance bay right or doing cpr um and i was just up there last week uh and i looked in the ambulance bay and there's a I'll send you the picture, a stack of uh, oxygen cylinders. Now, if that was reported to OHS, I oh, OHS yeah. should come out, and that would be a $500 fine per cylinder. Yeah. Every O2 cylinder that's improperly stored. There were 15 of them all stacked up willing, you know, and nobody does anything. Like, I wrote a, a big report with the Human Factors Department back in 2014 or and we got invited to San Diego. We spoke at the healthcare design conference about this, uh, this idea we had for the ideal ambulance bay and how you manage, you know, through, you know, flow through and, and cleaning and all of the, 
it was a, it was a, it just literally got ignored by this organization. They just, no, we, we, uh, we even suggested that EMS should take over the ambulance bays at the hospitals and run them themselves. Buy a four-wheel drive in a trailer. We'll restock everything. We'll clean it. Drive each bay every day. Nope, the hospital said that's part of our footprint. We're not giving that up. I mean, it just that's the kind of failure to to look after business that uh, you believe me. If there was any choice, if AHS had any competition at all, they'd be out of business. Yeah. Well, that might happen. We can only hope. Yeah. But again, look at these good people that work there and great equipment, enthusiastic patient care providers who are extremely competent. Wouldn't it be nice if we just treated them right and let them get, I firmly believe, well, paramedics are so, they're unique individuals. Uh, remember, if I come into your house in a medical emergency, you're no longer in charge of your home. Mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. And if I have to move a coffee table or we have to remove you from the scene so that we can look after your wife who's collapsed on the floor because you're out of control. Yeah. We can do that. Yeah. It takes a special kind of individual. That's a lot of, uh, a lot of confidence and training. You need to do that. And I tell new people every day, I said on every single call, you're going to throw your whole career in the air. Then you're going to try and catch it again. Because yeah. if you make a mistake and somebody dies, you'll be held accountable. So uh, you have to be good at what you do. You have to be rested and ready to go. Um, you have to protect your back and you have to protect your mental health. So I think if we just got out of paramedics way and let them do their jobs, we have a very successful ambulance service. We don't need a lot of, of uh, management or supervision, but these guys that want to, basically they want to silence any dissent. It sounds like anything dealing with government, that's kind of what, if, if you just left the people alone that knew their jobs and were able to do it, they yeah. would actually accomplish their job. And it's the whole bureaucracy of AHS and any other, you can name that right through, you know, farming, uh, oil field, you name that. And it's this bureaucracy that just seems to just stifle uh, what is actually happening. Yep. And and again, it's, it's, if you're the worker, you actually know your job better than anybody that's uh, in uh, a supervisor role. Yeah. There's a, there's so many bad supervisors. There's mm -hmm. a big scandal brewing too about, uh, I'm not sure what's going on. We're, we'll find out more about that soon enough. Wow. Yeah. Uh, in EMS and supervision. Yeah. I mean, all, you, all I've heard right now are rumors, but. Uh, yes. Did you uh, finish that list of 10 points? I think we only made it to five or four. <laughs> so uh, I'll send you this list. Do you want me to read it at all? Or? Yeah, sure. Yeah, read it out. It's pretty short. So A, replace the current leadership team. If you won't do this immediately, no part of any 10-point plan will work. And then number one, end all pending discipline. Paramedics have been punished enough. Number two, return all staff on leave to active duty. Bring them in. Tell them they're valuable and that you need their help. No matter their injury, there is a job for them here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number three, stop micromanaging dispatch. Trust them. Let them provide care to the best of their ability. Number four, triage all minor calls for alternate transport at dispatch. Paramedics can also cancel on scene and refer minor patients back to dispatch for alternate transport. Yeah. Mandate cruise shift end times. Crews go home on time without fail. Yes. That yeah. one's really important. Yeah. Mandate. I mean, if you don't take care of your crews, who's going to take care of your patients? Really, that's yeah. that should be management's main job is to look after the employees so they can do the so they can do the work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So number six, mandate the end of hallway, uh, hospital hallway waiting. Transfer of care happens at triage, period, every time. Number seven, mandate vehicle readiness standards. 
No more ambulances rolling out the door unless they're certified safe and ready. And uh, there are like a, a Peel region in, in Ontario does a great job of making sure that every time a paramedic crew gets in the truck, it's clean, it's fully stocked, it's fully fueled, it's ready to roll. Mm -hmm. um, number eight, assist. Now, this is really assist rural communities to form volunteer paid on-call cores. Let citizens who want to help with response and transport. This program would eventually broaden to include urban centers. But again, and we talk about that's the first responder program as well, so that you could sign up if you had medical training, or even CPR, and uh, you would be alerted if somebody on your street was having a medical emergency. Yeah, yeah. Um, number nine, uh, private operator use for inter-facility patient transfers. Let's get these legitimate qualified players into the game. And number 10, Establish EMS volunteer youth course for the future of EMS, 15 to 18 year old cadet paramedic program and a youth first responder program. I don't think any wow. of these are complicated. No, uh, none of them would be expensive. I mean, I probably assisting rural communities with rebuilding their uh, volunteer cores that that AHS dismantled uh, post 2009 would that might run into some uh, some dollars, but it wouldn't be nearly as much as what they're spending on uh on mental health and mm -hmm. uh, physical health disability payments right now i know this is better than the the 10 point plan you know how i know that because yours yours goes to 11. that's right <laughs> turns to 11. well it's kind of like that first one where if you don't if you don't get rid of the senior leadership team nothing's going to change no you're right nobody and that's changed. you know that's one that politicians won't say out loud yeah. because when they say that all of a the sudden, they risk losing the votes and the support of the people who are in that group, and especially the union. Well, and that's uh, that's a powerful player. And you know, if you uh, if you say the word private and you believe in using a mixture of public and private uh, healthcare in a in a healthcare environment these days, um, I've literally had people threaten to punch me in the face and say, well, "I'll never work private." I should punch you in the face. I go, listen, if there's problems with private operators that you don't like, if you think they're, maybe it's because they're not really brought in and made part of the team. I mean, uh, I do know right now that associated ambulance crews yeah. that leave Sylvan Lake and are told to go to Red Deer and stand by, they're not allowed to use the Red Deer stations because that's the Red Deer Fire Department that runs. There's literally no place for them to go except to sit on the side of the road. So when you, when you tell contract providers they're not as good as, mm -hmm. or if you tell private providers that, listen, we don't want to use you because we hate you, and we're only going to use you if we desperately need you. Uh, I think the Strathmore hospital manager was told, you can only ever call a private ambulance in dire circumstances. Well, if you've got somebody who's suffering, why do you want to wait till it's dire? Let's, yeah. get, them to, let's get them to the hospital. Let's Sounds get like every day is, is dire. There's well, always something that's dire. You know, if you've got a hot appendix and you've got abdominal pain, let's not wait until you're screaming. Yeah. Let's get it looked at now. Yeah. I mean, for God's sake, let's uh, let's take care of people. That's what we do. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, this has certainly been an amazing conversation, uh, an eye-opening, I think, for a lot of people who may, you know, we we all knew there was something wrong with the system and. And and I've I've got a couple of friends that were were ambulance workers and you know they they kind of told me the the situation even like ten years ago, and um, 
it, and it's one of these things that, you know, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, now the whole system seems to be collapsing. And again, with the whole pandemic, we were told that, you know, two weeks flatten the curve and we got to just, uh, you know, you got you got to fix fix and help the system. Yeah, right. And uh, so, again, at Airdrie's meeting last week, yeah, uh, the presenters from EMS said, well, you know, we had a pandemic and all my... I've heard all of those excuses, the yeah. pandemic, wildfire. I even heard low birth rate. Bill McFarland from CTV published an account, published some story about EMS. And at the end, he, he said, we asked EMS for their opinion. They said, well, we don't have many paramedics these days because of the low birth rate over the last several years. <laughs> and I go, that is, I mean, the guys at AHS Media must have been sitting there going, I can't believe we got away with that. But if for your what, for your listeners, for your Everybody watching this right now, if you want to help, help yourself, help your community, have a plan B when you call an ambulance. Yeah, yeah. Know that you're sometimes, you might be on your own. Yeah. And get involved in your local citizen action group. And if you haven't got one, start one. They're not hard. It's really just a group of people who are frustrated about, I mean, we've all heard the stories about people yeah. in our community who haven't been served. So get together with a group, have a regular meeting. If I keep telling these citizen action groups, if you don't have regular meetings once a month, you're not really a group. Pay attention. So, What's that? I, I just want to, before I forget, sure. just in, in, I was just thinking, if, if you want to do something like that in your community, you could do something like simple, like even just start a WhatsApp chat group with your neighborhood. Yep. And, you know, your first call is an ambulance. And your second thing is to send a message to the chat group. Hey, That's we're right. having this problem over here. Um, yep. Can anybody help? Yep. And dimes to dozens, there's probably one or two or three or four people on your street that have first aid training that could be there in a matter of a minute. Yeah. And it's as simple as a WhatsApp or, you know, something, some sort of chat group that yeah. you can communicate with your neighbors. Yeah. Yep. And that's a great, uh, we, like I said, we, even in Cochrane, there's one of the uh, communities there that's talked about doing that for their community and having a group of folks who communicate on WhatsApp and respond when necessary. Um, again, though, a citizen, if you go on Facebook and yeah. you, Look up EMS crisis citizen action group. You're going to find like almost a over a dozen of them, and take a look at some of the things they're posting. Some of them are foiping their own local uh, information. Uh, some of them are uh, the Cochrane Facebook or crisis group. They actually raised six hundred dollars and bought a table at the Chamber of Commerce trade show, mm. and they had a petition. They got thirty five hundred sing signatures that they took to Peter Guthrie. The MLA saying we want better ambulance service. Yeah. Um, the uh, they've worked with their town council, uh, Cochrane Town Council, to get and they're on side. The mayor and one of the councillors come to the meetings yeah. that they have. So, yeah, there's lots. They also uh, participate in uh, with a local first aid group. Try to get people trained. Uh, yeah. Worked hard to get people trained, and they've also held a golf tournament to raise money to buy AEDs to put in different places in the community. Yeah. Knowing, of course, that an AED doesn't replace. You know, it's not a replacement for an ambulance. It's just a good tool. Work. Community action groups. Look at uh, look at the community action groups that have formed uh, to like any any of those freedom rallies. That's what those are. Those are community action groups. The uh, Freedom Convoy yeah. that went to Ottawa. That was a community action group, a yeah. citizen action group. So, uh, Southside Victory Church has uh, their citizen action group. They have John Carpe come and speak to them. Yeah on a regular basis. So yeah. guys get uh, everybody who's listening to this, get out in your community and build a group and yeah. 
pick something you're passionate about and, and all you got to do is listen and try and help and you're going to be very successful. Now, we usually end up just by saying, so if anybody needs to get a hold of you, can they and, uh, and how do they do that? Absolutely. I'm on Facebook. Don Sharp, and you can also look at that, uh, my, a lot of my work, I'm all over if you Google Don Sharp, paramedic ambulance bay. Okay. But on Facebook, um, you can send me an email at don.sharp, with an E at the yeah. end, of, at shaw.ca, don.sharp yeah. at shaw. Yeah. Happy to hear from anybody if you want help starting a citizen action group, if you have questions about the ambulance service. If you don't like anything I said, no. please send me an email. I'd be happy to talk to anybody. If you, uh, if you want to go talk to your MLA about EMS and you want to have an idea of how to make a one-page summary of the things you care about mm-hmm. to present your MLA and a way to hold them accountable yeah. uh, for what you bring them, uh, I've, I've helped a number of people do that as well. And if you're a paramedic who's really struggling and just wants to talk, uh, by all means, give me a call. I've, uh, I've been, I've had my own, uh, PTSD issues in the past. I've I've done horrible calls and uh, I've survived forty years in EMS and now I'm, mm. but I'm not going away. I'm uh, I'm going to stick around. Uh, That's awesome. Try to help. We definitely need more people like you for sure, Don. So well, thank, thank you. you for everything that you've done and and yeah, I don't know what else to say. But it's like, what a what a great conversation. So thank you so thank much. You. Well, I'm grateful to you guys for this medium that you've produced and. Uh, and the way you use it. So it's a real pleasure to be here. So thank you. Right. Well, and, I, and I'll say, uh, you know, th- thank you for your service and for your continued service. Without people like you, uh, there would, I mean, well, I don't even want to know what the world would look like. But anyway, uh, I'm going to let Carrie wrap this one up. And yep. um, then I'm going to take off and head down to Calgary. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much again, Don, for uh, for everything that you've done. And, uh, and it's a pleasure speaking with you. And... Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure our paths will cross many, many times in the next uh, little while uh, dealing with everything, dealing with AHS, yeah, EMS, and uh, and government in general. So thank you. Again. Yep. There is hope. All right. Thank Bye-bye. you very much. Have a good night, everybody. Bye-bye. See you at the movies. All right. Thanks. Right on.